0: is going on true crime fans. I'm your host Heath
1: and I'm your other host Daphne
0: and you're listening to Going West.
1: Big thanks to our friend Michelle over at Private Investigations for the Missing. We love that nonprofit and also we love Michelle so much. She's the one who told me about this case and I was super intrigued from the start. So I'm really excited to talk about it today.
0: Yeah, and also, thank you so much, Michelle. She actually gave us, sent us some uh, goodies from Private Investigations for the Missing, which she also sent me some really awesome bracelets, which I wear every day. Michelle, if you're listening, I wear them every day.
1: Yes, thank you so much, Michelle. We love you. And thank you so much, everybody, for joining us today for yet another episode of Going West. For those who do not know yet, we are going to be doing a second podcast. So it's going to be called The Dark Parts. And we're releasing the first three episodes on October 1st. It's going to be out everywhere. And it's about like hauntings and urban legends and all that kind of stuff. So it's going to be really, really fun. And it's a bit more casual than going west. So a lot more fun and kind of goofy and a little less serious.
0: Yeah, we are absolutely pumped for you guys to check out this new show. It is so fun. Uh, We're releasing it right around Halloween. We planned that out so that you guys can get a little spooky in your daily uh, listens. So anyways, if you guys are interested in a podcast like that, head over and give us a follow on our social media accounts. You can follow us over on our Instagram at the dark parts podcast and on Twitter at the dark parts pod. All right, guys, without further ado, we're going to get into today's episode. This is episode 85 of Going West. So let's get into it.
1: In 1989, a 13-year-old girl ran to a neighbor's house in her New York community, and she never came home. Luckily, multiple witnesses spotted her going into a certain house, but when family and eventually police knocked on their door, no one in the home knew where she was, and they all denied seeing her that day at all. So what happened? This is the murder of Kelly Ann Tinius. Kelly Ann Tinius was born on March 5, 1975, to parents Victoria and Richard Tinius. And she had a younger brother whose name was also Richard but he goes by Richie, and he's five years younger than Kelly. Kelly was raised in Valley Stream, New York, which is located on Long Island, and is just about 15 miles, or 24 kilometers, to New York City, and it's just about a 15-minute drive from JFK, so super close to the airport. It's a village with about 35,000 people living there, so a pretty small community right next to the bustling city. It was known to be a very tight-knit, working-class community with 19 families living on their street, which is Horton Road. So definitely the kind of place with nice neighbors who had block parties and barbecues together, and all the kids on the street knew each other well because they spent their whole lives on the same block. So there was that really safe feeling.
0: On the afternoon of Friday, March 3rd, 1989, 13-year-old Kelly returned from her 8th grade classes at Woodmere Middle School in the neighboring town of Hewlett, New York. Since her 8-year-old brother Richie was home but her parents were still at work, it was always Kelly's job to watch after Richie until her parents returned in the early evening. Kelly didn't always love this job of hers because she had a lot of friends in the neighborhood and always wanted to go hang out with them after school. Especially on this day because it was two days before her 14th birthday and she was ready to celebrate. That night, she had plans with her four best friends to go out to dinner and then have a slumber party at one of their houses, so she was looking forward to that. Kelly loved her neighborhood because there was an ice skating rink right there, and she was a really good skater, and she was well-liked and well-known amongst the other kids in the community, so she had a lot of fun growing up in the Valley Stream area. And in fact, one of her best friends, Sharon, lived just five houses down from her. On this Friday afternoon, she actually wanted to go to the ice skating rink with her friends, but her dad said no because she couldn't leave her little brother at home by himself. But he said that she could probably go when he got home.
1: Kelly's father, Richard, owned an auto repair business, so that kept him busy during the days and he really enjoyed the work that he did. Victoria, Kelly's mom, worked as well, but in a very different field than Richard. She actually worked at a local doctor's office. They usually returned home around the same time each day, which was about 6 p.m. So Kelly and Richie were alone each afternoon with their dog Brutus for about three hours. Kelly was known to be just overall a really good kid. Like she loved her family and she loved spending time with them and was always helping around the house. So she genuinely didn't mind watching her brother every day because she understood why she was given that responsibility. But of course, sometimes she wanted to be able to hang out with her friends. That afternoon, around 3 p.m., the Tignettes' home got a call, and Richie answered it. It was from a boy named John who wanted to talk to his sister Kelly, so Richie handed the phone to her. Their call was super brief. It probably lasted just about a minute or so, but a few minutes later, at about 3.10 p.m., Kelly told her brother Richie that she was going to her friend Nicole's house for a bit up the street and that she'd return soon.
0: Since Richie was only eight years old and wasn't used to being left alone ever, he became a bit worried when Kelly didn't come home after a few minutes. In Kelly's mind, she probably didn't intend to be gone for just a few minutes, but her brother took her word literally. Since Richie knew the neighborhood, he walked up the street alone to Nicole's house to fetch his sister Kelly but Nicole informed him that she hadn't been there at all that day. So Richie left to walk home, feeling pretty confused. A six-year-old boy nearby named Harry had overheard Richie asking about Kelly, so he told Richie that he saw her walking into the Golub's house, which was five doors down, right across the street from her friend Sharon's house, and right next to Nicole's house, where she was supposed to be. So Richie rang the doorbell at the Golub's house, to ask for Kelly, but no one came to the door. With that, Richie left and went back to his house without Kelly and called his dad to explain the situation. Since the six-year-old neighbor boy Harry had told Richie that she'd gone to the Golub's house, Richard told his son Richie to go back and knock on the door until somebody answered. So he did.
1: The Tinya's parents felt safe having eight-year-old Richie go over there because he knew the neighborhood well and They didn't think that Kelly was in any kind of danger. They were just a bit frustrated that she would leave her brother alone to hang out with her friends. And since someone named John had called her, Richie and their parents assumed that this had to have been John J. Golub, a 14-year-old boy that grew up alongside the Tinius family. Richie was a pretty smart kid, and he decided to call the Golub's house using the phone book, and he called several times without getting a response. So finally, Richie went a few houses down to the Gollibs and he knocked and knocked and rang the doorbell, but still, no one answered. This is when Richie noticed that there was rock music blasting from inside the house. So he knew someone was home, they just weren't coming to the door. He then started shouting out Kelly's name, hoping that she would just come out of the house and take him home, but she didn't.
0: Victoria, who remember is Kelly and Richie's mom, came home a bit earlier that day to make sure everything was okay after Kelly left her brother home alone. When she arrived home around 5 p.m., so just two hours after Kelly left the house, she was confused to find that Richie was still home alone. By this time, Kelly's friends were calling and getting ready for the evening because none of them had seen her and they wanted to make sure that she'd be ready in time for the birthday celebrations that night. The only one of Kelly's friends who had seen her that afternoon was Sharon, the girl who lived five houses down. And Sharon also saw her go into the Golub's house around 3 p.m. So this is a second person to witness that happening. When Richard came home around 6 p.m. that evening, he called over to the Golub's and was able to get a response from Elizabeth, who is Mrs. Golub. He asked Elizabeth if Kelly was there, and she explained that no, she wasn't.
1: It was pretty strange that John Jay Golub called her, because the Golubs weren't a very friendly family, and they didn't participate in a lot of the neighbor activities like everyone else did. Kelly was not known to be friends with John Jay at all. They knew each other since they'd grown up on the same street, but even Kelly's friends later stated that she and John just didn't know each other well. And John Jay was a year older than her, so he was a freshman at Hewlett High School, They didn't have any of the same friends and had not been known to ever hang out before. John Sr., so John Jay's dad, did auto repairs just like Kelly's dad, and he operated a gas station nearby. He was known to be kind of a dud personality-wise, but his wife Elizabeth was a little bit more social. She had some friends in the area and would take their sons to the local Catholic church, and she worked as well. So there was John Jay and his older brother, Robert, who was 21 years old at this time, and then their older sister, Adele, who worked for an accounting firm in Manhattan. So she wasn't living at home.
0: When Richard called to the Gollubs, Elizabeth wasn't entirely sure initially who Kelly even was because the families just weren't really friends and they didn't really know each other. But when Elizabeth remembered Kelly, she told Richard that she was sorry, but she hadn't come by that day at all. Since Richard was told by Richie that someone named John called the house asking for Kelly, he asked Elizabeth if he could speak to him. She thought that this was kind of strange but handed the phone to John Jay. Richard then asked John Jay if Kelly was there, and John explained that he hadn't seen Kelly for a while and that they weren't friends. And this was really strange to hear because two people had seen Kelly go into that house, and she had gotten a call from a John, so it didn't make sense that the Golubs hadn't seen Kelly that afternoon. And this really frustrated Kelly's parents because they just wanted to know where she
1: was and didn't understand how the Golubs didn't know. Which you can only imagine. I mean, just from this much of the story so far, you're just like, how, like how, does, how are they all just completely unaware? We have two people that saw her go in there, even though she wasn't supposed to, but then we have this obvious call from a John... And then, of course, she goes into the house of a John. It's like, how could she not be there? And how could nobody know, nobody in that house know where she was? Like, that's just so frustrating.
0: Yeah, that makes no sense to me. I don't understand why they're not cooperating in the situation.
1: As the afternoon turned into the evening, it was time for Kelly's birthday dinner. Her friends still hadn't heard from her, but they were hoping that she would show up anyway and that everything was okay. But Kelly didn't even go to her own birthday dinner. The girls ended up eating it without her. So this raised a lot of red flags that something just wasn't right. Now that it was nighttime, Richard and Victoria were sick to their stomachs. Richard then decided to drive around to the skating rink and the local pizza place, the mall, anywhere he thought Kelly would be hanging out at. When Victoria reached out to the gollub house and spoke to Elizabeth, She could tell that Elizabeth felt for her and she was just as confused about reports of Kelly being in her house. At midnight, so nine hours after Kelly left the house, Richard reported his daughter missing to the Nassau County Police Department.
0: It being 1989, police felt confident that Kelly was probably just off with a friend and that she would be back. Which I hate when they do that. I mean, I know it's midnight and this little girl's still missing. She missed her birthday dinner. Like, come on. They told Richard that if Kelly hadn't returned home by the morning, that they would come out and look for her. So on Saturday, March fourth, which was the next day, when Kelly still was nowhere to be found, the Tenyas family walked over to the Golub house to check for Kelly one more time before calling the police yet again. Elizabeth answered the door and woke up John Jay, telling him that Kelly's parents were asking for her again, and they needed to know if he'd seen her. Once again, John Jay said that he had not seen Kelly or called her. While Elizabeth was getting John Jay, she had let Victoria and Richard enter her home's entryway to wait, and they were alarmed with the mess inside. Elizabeth was a hoarder, and there was just junk covering the entire house. You could barely see the floor or any of the home's furniture. When Elizabeth came back down and explained that John Jay had no idea where Kelly was, Richard and Victoria called the police and asked them to step in.
1: Since Elizabeth wasn't aware that they had called police, she started aiding in the search for Kelly by knocking on other doors in the neighborhood and calling around to the people that she knew to see if anyone had seen her. Because she felt bad for Kelly's parents and knew that Kelly wasn't at her house so she wanted to help find her. Meanwhile, police started calling all of Kelly's friends to see if they knew something about Kelly that her parents didn't or if they were helping keep a secret for her. But they all said no. Kelly wasn't dating anyone, and she never had. She didn't drink or do drugs, and she was an all-around good girl. She didn't keep secrets or hide anything. And regarding John Jay, they didn't have a relationship or even a friendship. None of the friends knew why Kelly would go over there or where she could be that morning. They were all just terrified at the thought of her being missing. Police were able to determine that the call made to the Tynus's house from someone named John did come from the Golub house. So this only verified the big question surrounding this family's home and police knew they had to pay a visit there.
0: Yeah, so now it's like you really can't hide anything because they know for a fact that the Golubs had, at least somebody from that Golub house, had made a call.
1: Yeah, because now it's not just, oh, somebody on the street probably saw it wrong. It's like, no, we have a record of the connection that afternoon between the Golub house and the Tinyas house.
0: Exactly. Before police arrived at the Golub house, Elizabeth was grilling John Jay regarding Kelly because she just didn't understand why everyone said that Kelly came over when Elizabeth knew that there wasn't anyone in her home. She even made John Jay go over to Sharon's house to talk to her about Kelly, since Sharon had seen Kelly go into the house, and Sharon stood by her story. But John Jay kept denying it. Minutes later, some Nassau County detectives showed up at the Gallup home and began asking Elizabeth questions regarding Kelly Tenius. When detectives walked into the home, they too noticed the incredible mess and they even had to stand during the interview because there was just nowhere to sit. All of the chairs were covered in various items. Detectives started with John Jay, but again, he was very adamant that he hadn't seen Kelly around the neighborhood in multiple days and that they were not friends, so she would have no reason to come over to the house.
1: Detectives wanted to question everyone in the house, so next on their list was Robert Golub. Remember, Robert is the 21-year-old brother who lives at home. He was a pretty stocky guy, under 5 feet tall and built up because he enjoyed lifting weights. When the detectives arrived, he had a friend over, so they both came downstairs. Robert told the police that he didn't know Kelly at all, but he knew what she looked like just by seeing her around the block. But he hadn't seen her in a while and didn't have any idea where she'd be. And remember, they were 7 years apart, so... They were even less familiar than she was with John Jay. Robert was home all day on Friday, but he told police that he didn't see her in the house at all. John had been at the house too with some of his friends playing video games, and they both stated that neither of them answered the door for Kelly, nor did they call her and invite her over. Their parents had been at work in the afternoon, so they didn't answer the door either, and they didn't see her at all when they arrived home from work. And to make matters even more difficult, Sharon didn't see who answered the door. And of course, she didn't know to be looking for that. She just happened to see Kelly going inside. So this entire family seems to be so confused and doesn't know why Kelly would be in their house. Yet she was witness going in there.
0: Sharon gave her statement to detectives before they moved on to six-year-old Harry's house to talk to him. Harry, on the other hand, claims that he did see who opened the door for Kelly and it was John Jay. At this point, investigators were confident that John Jay was hiding something and that he had been lying to them. And with this information, they wanted to get a search warrant to go through the Golub's home. But since search warrants can take some time to get, they first wanted to see if the Golub family would willingly grant them permission to search the home. Since Elizabeth also wanted to know where the hell Kelly was, she signed off on it and John Jay gave his approval to his mom to do so as well, stating that he had nothing to hide. Police explained to Elizabeth that they felt that Kelly was likely hiding somewhere and had been hanging out with John or something, and they just wanted to bring her home to her parents and make sure that she was safe. Sometimes Daphne and I are doing research for Going West, And we subscribe to different newspapers from all around the country. And then we forget to unsubscribe. But that's exactly why we love Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings.
1: You'll be able to see all of your subscriptions in one place. And if you see something you don't like, Rocket Money can help you cancel it in just a few taps. It is seriously that easy. And that's why Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features.
0: Stop wasting money on things that you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com goingwest going west.
1: That's rocketmoney.com goingwest going west
0: rocketmoney.com slash going west.
1: Heath and I are major sufferers of seasonal allergies. They are the worst. It can even be difficult to host this show when our noses are all clogged up. We have tried brand after brand, but luckily for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. And big shout out to Claritin for supporting this show and providing us with samples.
0: Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter.
1: Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription.
0: Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so
1: that you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. We know you guys love a good mystery, especially one with twists and turns. Am I right? This is why you guys are going to love June's journey. Step into the role of June Parker while she tries to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder in the roaring 1920s.
0: In this hidden object mystery game, put your detective skills to the test.
1: While you're on this quest to uncover a scandalous hidden family secret... just freeing me from my constant anxieties. And also something I love is that their system blankets your entire home in protection from break-ins to fires to floods. And with indoor and outdoor cameras to choose from, you will feel safe any time of day or night.
0: And Simply Safe is backed by 24-7 professional monitoring agents to help stop crimes in real time.
1: Which is part of why they were named the best home security system of 2024. Simply Safe has given us and so many listeners real peace of mind. And we want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off of any new Simply Safe system with Fast Protect Monitoring at SimplySafe.com/slash going west. There's no safe like Simply Safe.
0: Detectives immediately began searching the Golub House, top to bottom. One detective began looking upstairs in the boys' bedrooms, while another started in the basement. Just like the rest of the house, the basement was an absolute shithole. There was trash all over the floor that made it really hard to walk on, so they knew this search wasn't going to be easy. There wasn't any obvious signs of anything happening, and since there was clutter everywhere, Detectives felt confident that no crime had been committed there since nothing had been cleaned up. So they continued their search throughout the house and tried to be as careful as possible and tried not to break anything as they walked on top of various items in the home.
1: Just before noon, as one of the officers and a detective made their way through the basement accompanied by John Golub Sr., he noticed an old-fashioned steamer trunk blocking the door beneath the stairs. So within the basement under the stairs, there was a small room, kind of like a Harry Potter room, but a little bit bigger, and that's the door that was blocked. The officer asked John Sr. what was behind the door, and he said that they just used it for more storage, so pretty much junk. The trunk was heavy, so John helped the officer move it out of the way so he could check the closet. When the officer opened the door, he peered around and found a room, you guessed it, full of junk. But as he moved his flashlight around the room, he noticed a green sleeping bag zipped up and propped up slightly on the wall. So he crawled over to it to see what was inside, and when he unzipped it, he saw a leg covered in dried blood. Completely shocked, he called out to the detective to come assist him. They touched the leg to make sure it wasn't a doll, and as they did, the skin dragged a bit. And they immediately knew it was that of a human who is decomposing inside of that sleeping bag. When I read this detail, I audibly said, no fucking way. Because I really did not believe that they would find a body. Like, no part of me thought that. Because after knowing that John Jay had agreed that they could search the house and that they all stated that they hadn't seen Kelly at all and the parents were trying to help, I just thought that there was no chance that she was there. Like, I could not believe that.
0: I honestly think the reason why John Jay agreed to this is, A, he's not the killer, or B, he thought that he had hid that body well enough that police weren't going to find it.
1: I just felt like because everyone seemed so confused that she hadn't been in the house, I I was like, how could she be in there? And the parents not know. And I know we have covered cases before where Bodies had been hidden, and we we covered two cases like that Jessica Ridgeway and Maddie Clifton, where the bodies were kept in the boys' rooms.
0: Exactly. Yeah. One was, or sorry, not
1: in the boys' rooms. Sorry. One was in the boys' room and the other was in the crawl space, right?
0: Yeah. One was in the crawl space and the other was underneath the waterbed, correct?
1: Yeah. So creepy to think about. But that's why reading this, I was like, if he's cool with them searching and there's all this suspicion surrounding him. There's no way she's in that house. So when I read this about the sleeping bag, I was like, (gasps) what? Like, I I could not believe it.
0: Yeah, well, now we have to move forward and find out who had killed Kellyanne. Before disturbing the scene further, they took photos and visually confirmed that the body belonged to Kelly Tinius, which they later had Kelly's uncle confirm for sure. They knew that the word would spread fast in the neighborhood, so a detective ran over to the Tinius house and explained that they had found Kelly's body, which I'm sure you can guess, just left them with so much distress and so many more questions. As more officers, as well as homicide detectives and a medical examiner, were called to the Golubs, they were able to take
1: Kelly fully out of the sleeping bag to
0: determine what had happened to her.
1: Kelly Tynes was five foot nine and 120 pounds, or 55 kg, and athletic, but her body didn't show any obvious defensive wounds. This made police think two things. Either she was unconscious when all of this happened to her or two people had committed this crime, one holding her down while the other beat her and brutally murdered her. Police immediately wanted to question John Jay yet again, so they went upstairs to do so. John held firm that he didn't do anything to Kelly and didn't know what happened to her. He once again explained that the day before he had two friends over and they were in his room playing Nintendo all afternoon and the friends could confirm this. He said he only saw Robert briefly during that time. After playing Nintendo he and his friends went to play a game of basketball and then went to the local pizza place to eat some food. Then John went home after 5 p.m. when his dad picked him up on his way home from work and it wasn't unusual for John Jay to go off and have dinner with his friends, and just kind of hang out away from home because this family wasn't very close. They didn't eat dinner together, and they weren't very tight-knit. John Jay and his brother Robert also kind of butt heads, and it's believed that either just Robert or both Robert and John Jay took drugs and got into trouble a lot. Robert specifically was known to take a lot of steroids, and Robert didn't even have a bedroom door anymore because of his difficult behavior. His parents took it off its hinges and got rid of it.
0: Yeah, probably because he was punching holes through it, getting all jacked up on steroids like a fucking Kyle. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for all the cool Kyles out there. Oh my god. <laughs> you just imagine this guy is like just pumping iron and then punching holes in his wall, I, fucking drywall.
1: I've I've seen a couple of photos of him, which we'll post on social media. But he's a total Kyle. Probably loves that Mountain Dew.
0: He loves that Mountain Dew. <laughs>
1: Anyways, so John Jay even suggested to police that maybe someone had snuck into their house to commit Kelly's murder, but this didn't make any sense considering someone still would have had to have called Kelly to invite her over and let her into the house. But originally, police did think that there was potentially a break-in in the basement because of its severe disarray, but John Sr. said it always looked like that.
0: He's like, nope. Just always been a shithole in here.
1: Exactly. And he blamed it on his wife. He's like, yeah, this is just how Elizabeth keeps it.
0: So it took nearly two weeks to fully process the crime scene because of all the junk that Elizabeth kept around the house and in the basement. Since Kelly's body was found amongst this junk, they had to carefully check everything from DNA evidence to blood and a lot more, which was a really tough task, as you guys can imagine. A lot of what was around the sleeping bag that Kelly was in was covered in blood that had seeped out of the sleeping bag. Near the sleeping bag was also a knife, which turned out to be an old rusty World War I long bladed bayonet, which looks like a small sword. So basically the person who committed this crime left the weapon at the scene and used a 70 year old weapon to commit this crime. Now let's talk about the autopsy.
1: Kelly's face and head were badly bruised and swollen as if she had been beat profusely, and it appeared that someone had yanked a good deal of long brunette hair from her head. Her brain had suffered damage from those beatings. They were that severe. And in fact, it was determined that she had suffered at least 200 blows to her head alone. Her throat had been nearly sliced off, and her bra was tied around this wound, covered in blood. She had countless cuts and wounds all over her body, and there was a long cut all the way from her chest down to her genitals, completely exposing her organs. There was also a bite mark on her rear end and on her neck, but her cause of death was ruled as homicide by strangulation and asphyxiation by mechanical trauma. And mechanical asphyxia just means that something put pressure on the person's airways, making them unable to breathe. And the reason her body had begun decomposing within just one day of being killed was because she was put in the sleeping bag. So her body heat had caused her to go into rapid decomposition. But it was determined that she had likely been killed between 3.15 p.m. and 8.20 p.m. This was another part that really shocked me, just how insanely brutal this was. Like, each detail just gets worse and worse. And to imagine that someone in that house, possibly a young teenager, is responsible of this is awful.
0: And I don't know how this person, whoever the killer is, was able to get away with basically cutting up this girl's body without anybody else in the house seeing this or any of the friends or or what have you
1: it's it's just so weird to think about because she was horribly mutilated this isn't just like somebody i don't even know it's not like she was just strangled since that was her cause of death it's not like that's all that it was it was so much more this was a this was a long ongoing process of now i'm gonna do this now i'm gonna do this now i'm gonna do this 200 blows in the head plus all those cuts to her body what the hell Like who, first of all, again, to think that a young person could do that, let alone a person at all, it's just so messed up.
0: Yeah. And I'm trying to imagine where this murder would have occurred without there being blood everywhere. Do you know what I'm saying? Like 200 blows to the head. You would think that there would be blood spatter on the walls or pools of blood or stainage on the floor. So it's like, I'm just trying to figure out where this was done.
1: Well, we're going to get a little bit more into the blood that was found, but that's a super good point that I don't even think I thought of is all the blood spatter, especially with all the cuts to her body and all the blows to her head. You would imagine that this would have caused a ton of blood spatter. But when he originally looked into the room, it looked normal other than the sleeping bag. But then when they did move some stuff, they found a bunch of blood. But again, where's all the blood spatter? That, that would have left a blood bath.
0: And was this house just so much of a mess that nobody noticed that there was blood everywhere? I mean, is that possible?
1: Well, that's why I think it had to have happened in the basement and not the rest of the house or else they probably would have seen at least something. I mean, but that's the thing is there was junk everywhere. You couldn't even sit. So I don't
0: know. As they continued to process the crime scene, they found blood on the carpet, doorknob, and pools of blood on the floor in the basement. There was also a briefcase nearby covered in bloodstains, and inside included Kelly's blood-stained clothes, some which had stab slices in them, meaning at least some of the attack occurred while she was clothed. They also found a bloody fingerprint on the wall of the basement closet. It was determined that the brain injury, face and head bruises, and bite on the neck were done while Kelly was still alive. It's unclear if she was conscious during it, but she wasn't dead. But the bite on her rear end and cuts to her neck and rest of her body were done post-mortem. Which again, fucks. Yeah,
1: which again, like, you're gonna, she's gonna die and then you're gonna mutilate her, you're just gonna sit there and mutilate her body? What the fuck?
0: Sick individuals. Since she did have that head injury, it's thought to be more than likely that she was passed out when she died. No known sexual assault took place, even though most of her clothes were missing or up around her neck. The medical examiner was also able to determine that the attack on Kelly started about 20 minutes before she died.
1: And then there's the mutilation that took place after. So this was not a short thing.
0: Right. The cuts to her body and pelvic area were thought to have been caused by the bayonet, but the slice in her neck looked to have been made with a sharp, possibly glass object. There appeared to be a third weapon involved, but it's undetermined what that would actually be.
1: This was obviously a very brutal crime, and investigators just didn't know how it would be committed by a small 14-year-old boy, even if his friends were in on it. When they searched Robert's room, they found a few knives, but none of them matched any of the wounds made to Kelly's body. They knew that Robert was a bodybuilder, so him having committed this crime would make more sense. But then there's the phone call that was made by John. So were they both involved? Investigators had no idea where to even begin because John Jay was firm that he had nothing to do with Kelly's murder. Meanwhile, they couldn't locate Robert Golub, who had left the house earlier that day and never returned.
0: The afternoon that Kelly was killed, both John Sr. and Elizabeth were out of the house at work until around 5 or 6 p.m. John Jay was at school for the afternoon and returned home around 3 p.m. with his two buddies. Robert was home the entire day because he was unemployed, so he didn't get up to much other than weightlifting, watching TV, reading porn magazines, and smoking weed. Although Robert Golub had a 132 IQ score, which is considered a superior IQ, he didn't go to school, didn't have a job, and pretty much just laid around all day. At around 5.30 p.m., when Elizabeth returned home from work, the whole family was home. She told police that she made dinner, which she, John Sr., and Robert ate, just not together. When dinner was ready, Robert didn't come down, so Elizabeth had to go upstairs where she found Robert sleeping in his bed, and she woke him up telling him to come down and eat his dinner. He then took his food to his bedroom and ate alone, which was pretty normal. The family never really ate together. But this kind of gives us an idea that if everyone was home by 5 30 p.m., Kelly had to have been dead in the basement by then. Sometime after dinner, Robert went out and smoked weed with his friend before heading to a bar. And John Jay also went out with his friends. John Jay returned after 10 p.m. and then went to sleep. And Robert was dropped off around
1: 1 a.m. Police wanted to question John Jay's friends to see if everything lined up. Both of John's friends agreed that they spent the entire afternoon with John and they didn't think he was capable of killing anyone because he never left the room for long enough to. The only time they noticed him leave the room was when he snuck into Robert's room and turned up the stereo all the way so the house was filled with rock music. And this matches Kelly's brother Richie's account of hearing rock music blaring out of the Golub house around 4 p.m. And a few minutes after John Jay did this, Robert peeked into John Jay's room and asked them if any of them had turned up his stereo. But they all said no, even though they knew John Jay did. John Jay's friends also stated that they didn't see him call Kelly nor answer the door for her. They didn't see Kelly in the house at all that day. What I really wonder if police asked them that I could not find anywhere is if they heard Richie ringing the doorbell or knocking because he came the first time when the music was not playing and then the second time when the music was playing. And Richie had also called the Golub house multiple times before he went over there looking for his sister. So what's weird to me is there doesn't seem to be any mention of this if the friends heard this, if John heard the phone ring, if they heard Richie coming to the door asking for Kelly. I wish I knew that. I think that would kind of help to determine if any of them are lying because if they said, no, I didn't hear the phone ring or the doorbell ring at all that day, I just think that could help determine if any of them are lying or not. And I think it would help us determine what happened with Kelly a little bit further because if the boys say, if John Jay and his friends say they didn't hear the doorbell ring at all that day and they didn't hear the phone ring, then that would probably mean that Robert answered the door for Kelly, right?
0: Yeah, I definitely think that that's a fair assessment. If those boys didn't hear any of that, then yeah, I, w- I would definitely assume that Robert was the one who answered the door, since we know that nobody else was home at that time.
1: As police question people and kids around the neighborhood, though, they heard many people say that they sometimes did see Kelly and John Jay walking or talking together on the street. And someone even noted seeing them holding hands before. This isn't something that Kelly seemed to have told her friends or family, though. So it's definitely possible that they maybe kind of liked each other, or Kelly had a crush on John Jay or vice versa and hadn't told anybody about it because it was new or because she didn't want anybody to know. But it's weird to hear this and then know how adamant John Jay was that they didn't know each other because witness statements say otherwise. But at the same time, who knows if people saw the right thing? or if they just want to be involved in what's going on, so they're making it up. Especially for kids who are talking, it's, it's hard to know who to trust.
0: Now it was time to question Robert, but they had to find him first. After some searching, they found him out with his friend Paul, the friend who had been there earlier that day when police originally came by the Golub home. And they told Robert that they wanted to take him down to the station and ask him some questions. Robert's immediate reaction was that they wanted him to pay the speeding tickets that he'd racked up, because at this point, it didn't seem Robert was aware of what police had found in his family's basement. Because this is 1989. There's no cell phone for his parents to call him on, and he left the house before police came back to search it. So they took Robert down to the station, and this is when we got a more detailed account of Robert's Friday. He was being super cooperative and he also agreed to get his fingers printed and a DNA swab and then sat down with police. He told them that he woke up around 10 a.m. and ate some breakfast at home by himself. Then he went to the store to grab a weightlifting magazine, which he read for a few hours. When he went outside to get the mail in the afternoon, his brother John came home with his friends. Robert then stated that he returned to his room and watched TV before falling asleep. That's when his mom woke him up around 7 p.m. for dinner. Elizabeth told police that she woke him up around 5.30 p.m., so these times are a little different. Robert told police that he did not make any calls to the Tinius household asking for Kelly, but again, the call was confirmed to have come from the Golub home. So who made this call?
1: Also, Robert had a few cuts on his hands when he was questioned, and when they asked him about this, he told police that he had cut himself at the gym, And we know that he hadn't been a member at the gym for nearly a week because he couldn't afford to keep going. But unfortunately, police couldn't determine how old the cuts were. But it's definitely interesting. I mean, anytime that someone's being questioned for a murder and they have cuts on their hands is really suspicious.
0: Yeah, usually red flags for investigators.
1: So now that they had Robert's fingerprint, they tested it against the one that they found in the basement. It was determined to be a 12-point match. So experts have different opinions on what counts as a real match when looking at fingerprints. Some say all you need is 12 points to be the same in a print, and some say you need 20 points. But 12 is generally considered to either be a good match or a full match. It just kind of depends which fingerprint expert you ask. But regardless, this fingerprint appeared to belong to Robert Golub. Like we said, Robert was being very cooperative and had an overall calm disposition during the entire questioning, which lasted for hours. When he was asked to take a polygraph, he agreed, but the test came out inconclusive because he had moved around a bit during the test. Despite the fact that he really didn't seem like he was lying, they had the 12-point fingerprint match and they also felt strongly that the crime was committed by someone who was physically bigger than Kelly. And even though she would have been over nine inches taller than him, he was buff and could bench press twice his weight. Yeah, I forget if we mentioned that earlier. He was like under five feet tall. So he was super, you know, stocky, stocky dude. Both John Jay and
0: Robert are known to have been violent and also have weapons. There are some stories that John Jay and Robert both killed dogs at one point. John Jay using a knife. And Robert using a bow and arrow. They told their friends about this, so it's unknown if they just wanted to look cool, even though I don't know who the fuck thinks killing a dog is cool, or if they actually did it. But they're both known to be troubled and sometimes hostile. Especially if they've killed animals, one or both of them seem capable of possibly murdering someone in anger or out of rage. It's not like we're dealing with two angelic boys, They were major troublemakers and major shitheads. So that's something to keep in mind. At this point, neither of them were off the hook. Investigators just needed more evidence to figure out who was really behind this awful crime.
1: The following day, Sunday, March 5th, 1989, was Kelly's birthday. She would have turned 14 years old. So this was a very difficult day for her family and for the community. They really banded together during this time to show support and love but they also showed their hate towards the Golub family. They would stand outside the Golub home talking about justice for Kelly and they called Robert and John Jay murderers. Like they were chant the neighbors were chanting it outside of the Golubs house.
0: Yeah, I would too.
1: Well, especially in this super tight-knit community where everyone's friends and they're kind of the outcasts in a way who don't really communicate with everybody else and now suddenly They're murderers and they took one of the beloved members of the community like everyone is pissed. Three days later, on Wednesday, March 8th, Kelly's funeral took place. Since her body was in such bad shape due to the savagery of her murder, it was a closed casket service. Many of her family members and friends spoke and told stories of why Kelly was so special to them. Since at this
0: time, DNA testing wasn't very evolved... They weren't able to conclude much from the DNA test itself. They had a blood sample from the basement that didn't match Kelly's blood type. It belonged to someone with type O blood. Both John Jay and Robert have type O blood, unlike their parents. So although this couldn't conclusively say that it was John Jay or Robert's blood, it was a helpful indicator that it could be. This blood sample was a 1 in 400 match to them, so not the best odds, but still. With this, police felt that they had enough to arrest Robert Golub for Kelly's murder. They believed more than likely that he was the one to commit it. Since John Jay had friends who could account for his entire afternoon, whereas Robert didn't, they felt that it made more sense for Robert to have committed the crime. But first, the district attorney wanted to send the case to a grand jury, which happened on March 22, 1989. They couldn't determine that this murder was for sure premeditated, even though it appeared that either John Jay or Robert had called her to get her to come over to the house. A grand jury instead indicted Robert Golub for the second-degree murder of Kelly Tinias, meaning that he intentionally murdered her, but he just didn't plan it beforehand.
1: Kelly's parents didn't feel very much relief from this arrest because they thoroughly believed that John Jay was also involved. And they still didn't have any of the answers they wanted. In March of 1990, so one year after Kelly's murder, Robert Golub's trial began. Unfortunately, since there wasn't a ton of physical evidence or even a confession, most of the trial was circumstantial. And Robert was pleading not guilty to the charges and taking absolutely no responsibility for any of it. One of the things they discussed during this trial was the whole bite mark situation. Kelly's body had a bite mark on her neck and her rear end, and bite mark science wasn't very reliable, especially at this time. So while some experts said that it did match Robert's bite, his defense tried to prove how faulty the science was. They even brought in the chief forensic dentist for the New York City Medical Examiner's Office, who stated that the bite marks could not have been made by Robert's teeth. On the other side, the prosecutors tried to prove that a blood sample found at the scene matched Robert's. So remember how Heath said it was a 1 in 400 chance to be Robert or John Jay's blood? Well, more testing was conducted in a genetics testing laboratory, and they determined the blood found matched Robert's DNA very closely. So close that only one in 707 million people would match that DNA pattern. And those are huge odds. There's more than 707 million people in North America alone. The United States alone has around 350 million people. And there's under 600 million people in all of North America. So Robert was essentially the only person that matched this DNA pattern in North America and beyond. And this was just one lab's test, but I think it says a lot. And this wasn't the only blood sample that appeared to match Robert's. There were multiple. So I think it's pretty good odds.
0: I think it's definitely safe to say that that was Robert's blood. The only thing that confuses me, though, is the fact that his bite mark didn't match. A little confusing there.
1: Well, that's the thing is some people said it did match. Some people say it didn't. And then the defense was finally like, "Okay, this is not a clear science. So, you know. The thing that frustrates me is the fact that both John Jay and Robert had type O, because I think this whole case is, was it Robert or was it John Jay or was it both? So if Robert had type A and John Jay had type O, it would be a lot clearer. But the fact that they both have O is like, oh my God, are you serious?
0: Yeah, definitely. That makes it a lot more frustrating and a lot harder.
1: But, and I don't know if they did test I don't think they did because John Jay wasn't on trial. He wasn't considered a suspect. So I doubt that they tested his blood in the lab for that 707 million odds situation. So I don't know what his would have been against that, but Roberts was, you know, pretty high odds. I know all of you guys love listening to thrilling stories. So why not check out some thriller audiobooks on Audible? That is all I've been doing lately when I'm cooking, cleaning or driving. Because Audible includes an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre. And they have thousands of podcasts from popular favorites, like ours, that you guys can listen to.
0: As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. And on top of that, new members can try Audible free for 30 days.
1: With Audible, the time is now more than ever to embrace the breathtaking, sinister, and shocking tales that have enthralled you. Especially with brand new, exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. And I am very much gripped in the audiobook that I'm listening to now on Audible of The Drowning Woman. It is so good. New members can try
0: Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash going west or text going west to 500-500. That's audible.com slash going west or text going west to 500-500. Amongst all the evidence, there was a long brown hair found in Robert's bed. Kelly had long brown hair, and Robert had very short brown hair. Since they couldn't test the hair as an exact DNA match to Kelly's because of the lack of technology, the prosecution still tried to paint that it must have been her hair because it didn't match anyone in the family's. But when Elizabeth Golub took the stand, she stated that Robert had previously dated a girl who would sometimes come over, and that she also had long brown hair. But this girl was never questioned, so it's just Elizabeth's word. We also don't know the last time that she was over in proximity to Kelly's murder. Could have been a long time, could have been a short time. Elizabeth also testified that Robert and John Jay had been cleaning up the basement a week or so before Kelly's murder, and that there was broken glass down there, meaning that that could explain why Robert's blood was at the scene.
1: Which is so weird, because as we know, the basement was not clean. It was a freaking disaster. And we know the medical examiner felt that Kelly's throat was likely cut with glass. So this could be the source of the wound, the glass that was found in the basement. But Robert cutting himself in the basement prior to the murder, and that being the blood sample, doesn't make any sense, considering the blood that matched his was amongst the actual crime scene itself, where Kelly was found. It's not like it was like around the corner.
0: Yeah, I mean, what are you guys going to believe? That this hoarder's house is being cleaned by these two Troublemaker kids, and then that's how Robert got his blood at the scene? Or the fact that we know that Kelly's neck was potentially cut with some glass? I, I mean, it's like, who, which situation are you going to believe? I mean, in my opinion, he definitely cut his hand or left his own blood at the scene by using glass to cut Kelly's throat. That's just my opinion.
1: Right. And of course, the mother is saying this. So I don't know if I trust her anyway, because she doesn't believe in either of her son's guilt.
0: Right. She has a biased opinion in this whole matter.
1: Exactly. So yes, she is testifying and she is under oath. So she really shouldn't be lying here. And I hope she's not lying. But I think that she's just trying to paint this other picture. Maybe they were kind of tidying it up. And then she kind of threw that in there. But That's not how the blood got there. It's just not.
0: Well, if people are saying that that basement was a complete mess, then like how much tidying up did they really do?
1: I have one picture. Do you want to see it? I do. Uh, I'll post on social media too for you guys to see. It's a really bad quality black and white photo, but here it is.
0: Yeah, it looks like a complete mess. It looks like you can't even get down those stairs to get into the basement. There's like a punching bag off to the side and a bunch of trash scattered everywhere. Yeah. Definitely a mess.
1: Which is why it's crazy that her body even got down there in the first place, which is why I believe the crime had to have been committed in that closet, because if she was bloody going down that, there would have been blood all over that shit. So yeah, go check it out. There's stuff everywhere. That stuff was not cleaned up.
0: Yeah, and let us know what you guys think.
1: The case went on for seven weeks, and the jury deliberated for eight hours. Before their deliberation in April 1990, the district attorney spoke to the courtroom. He said, Who killed Kellyanne? Who met Kellyanne at the front door? Who took her by the throat, crushing her necklace? Who took her to the basement? Who assaulted her when she resisted the sexual attack? Who crushed her head against the floor and beat her unconscious? Who bit her on the neck? Who bit her on the buttocks and mutilated her? The DA then pointed to Robert Golub, who by this time was 22 years old, and added, who is sitting right here in the courtroom with us? Robert Golub was found guilty of second-degree murder and sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. The judge added, you have been convicted by a jury for the most atrocious crime I have experienced in my 17 years as a judge. The manner in which you killed Kellyanne Tinius and mutilated her body Surpasses the worst murders in the history of this country. Robert's only response was, "I did not kill Kelly Ann Tinius. The prosecutor on the case referred to Robert as antisocial and a sociopath who has expressed no remorse.
0: Over the years, John Senior and Elizabeth Golub have stated that they believe their sons are completely innocent. They think that Robert was framed and that John Jay's name was ruined for no reason and that, throughout his life, has had to go by different aliases to hide who he really is so that people don't come after him. But what they never answered is how such a framing could occur and how an innocent nearly 14-year-old girl was found brutally slaughtered in their basement. I would understand them thinking these things if her body was found somewhere else and there was no DNA evidence, but her body was found inside of your house. And multiple witnesses saw Kelly entering that house. And someone in your house called Kelly to come over. And what about the bite mark and the fingerprint and the blood evidence that matched Robert?
1: Totally agree. It's, it's, it's so funny reading interviews of them where, you know, they, they don't say very much because they want to be left alone. But what they do say is that their sons were framed. It's like, okay, then what's your explanation for all of this shit? What do you mean they were framed? How? Did you do it then? Like, what?
0: Yeah, did a phantom come into your house and murder a 14-year-old girl in, in your basement and then plant her there? I mean, come on.
1: Exactly. It's ridiculous. For years, the Tenya's family wanted the Gollubs to move out, but they didn't. The Tenya's family didn't feel that they should be the ones to move, but having both families on the same block for years and years after the murder really ruined the community aspect of Valley Stream. It didn't feel like that safe place where kids could play outside and have fun anymore. Neighbors didn't feel like having their annual barbecues or pool parties. Everything was just tainted. The Golub's reason for not moving was because they couldn't afford to. Having their family painted in such a negative light brought a lot of financial hardship on them, so they stayed in that house for 20 more years. In 2009, they were finally able to sell their four-bedroom brick house and relocate. And I thought the new owner had some interesting things to say. She knew the history of the house before she bought it, and when a reporter knocked on her door one October day, wondering how she felt about it, she stated, I don't care what happened here. It happened 20 years ago, not yesterday. Before closing the door, she added, This is my house now. I'm trying to live in peace here. She also stated that she feels bad for the family, but she's not bothered by the fact that said crime took place in her new home that she is raising her three children in.
0: OK, uh, kind of an odd statement.
1: I think she was probably just pissed that they were asking her because she's like, oh, God, am I am I in that house where people are just going to come knocking on my door randomly? But like, have a little respect.
0: Yeah, I kind of think that she was just trying to defend her own family, you know, like protect her family from from reporters and the media and stuff like that. Yeah, and just kind of shush him away. In 2013, during a parole board hearing, 43-year-old Robert Golub finally confessed to murdering Kelly, which can be seen on transcripts. He stated that he had been on a ridiculous amount of steroids when he walked down the stairs outside his bedroom and collided with Kelly, who was on her way up the stairs. This caused Kelly to fall down the stairs which made him incredibly angry. He said he was in a roid rage at that point. When he went to check on her, she was unconscious. He said he felt like she was imposing on him and inconveniencing him. Like all of a sudden, he now had to deal with her and she was passed out. Instead of calling for help, he let his anger get the best of him. So he grabbed her by the ankle and dragged her into the basement. During this time, he said all of her clothes rode up her body, which he thinks caused her to suffocate. He slapped her to get her to wake up, and then he began punching her repeatedly. He says, I acted horrendously that day. After this, he asked for them to release him so that he could live every day in memory of that girl I killed. I'm just very, very sorry.
1: This confession really doesn't make any sense. Okay, so you're really pissed off. You're mad that she's not waking up. So, after she's dead, you meticulously destroy her body. It wasn't like he punched her a few times and it was too late and he tried to cover up her body because, you know, he accidentally killed her. Like her body was horribly mutilated. There were over 200 blows to her head alone, and her entire body was covered in bruises, meaning there was a lot of trauma done to her body while she was still alive because your body can't bruise after you die. So, Is he just going to act like cutting her throat open and her chest and pelvic area and biting her and beating her was just roid rage? Like, I would understand maybe beating out of intense anger and leaving it at that, which is still so horrible. But this murder was done with different weapons and there were so many injuries.
0: And I also don't buy the fact that Robert said that he bumped into her um, when she was coming up the stairs. I just, I don't buy that because then who called her to come over? If John Jay called her to come over, why wasn't John Jay like, hey, uh, you know, I called Kelly, asked her to come over, but she never did. Did you see anything? You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, to me, I think that John Jay at least likely knew it was going on. I also think it's possible that Robert was the one who called Kelly's house, pretending he was John so that she would come over. Like, I don't know what his motive would be, and I, I mean, because they really didn't know each other. But it's just weird to me that J- John denies calling Kelly and his friends also don't know how he would have done this. And if he left the room to go fetch Kelly from the front porch, his friends would know. But it's also strange to me that John Jay turned up the stereo in Robert's room. Like maybe he was trying to cover up any sounds that Robert was making while he killed Kelly. But then why did Robert ask John Jay and his friends who turned up his stereo and going back to Robert's confession too, I don't see how this makes sense also because that would mean that John Jay did invite Kelly over and why wouldn't John just say that if he didn't know that she was brutally murdered in the basement because if he was hiding the fact that Kelly was there at all he either knew the murder occurred or he helped do it. There's just so many questions.
0: Yeah, this is one of those cases where there's a lot of questions, but I can honestly say, confidently say that Robert is full of shit. That's definitely not how the situation went down. You don't just casually accidentally bump somebody down the stairs and then go punch them in the face. I mean, come on, the dude mutilated a body, mutilated. That's not that's not a word that we hear often in a situation that happens like an accident.
1: Exactly. And yeah, so you accidentally bumped into her and then The end result is that her body is mutilated. Like, it's not even like her body was mutilated so that it could be easily taken out of the house in pieces, as horrible as that sounds. It was mutilated for the fun of it, in a way. You know, like, somebody did this because they wanted to cut her up, not because they had to.
0: Yeah, and we always see this type of thing after the fact, and we always talk about it on this show. The fact that these killers like to make themselves or the crime that they committed seem less horrible than it actually was. They do this all the time because it's some way of admitting, yes, I did it, but, you know,
1: I didn't, I'm not a bad guy. It's like, yes, you are. It's just frustrating to me knowing that so many people in this house are lying. I don't know if it's John Jay and his friends. I don't know if it's Robert. I, I do think that they all were aware. This must have been this huge thing that happened. There's no way that what happened to Kelly was just a secret little thing that one of them did. The reason why John Jay was lying had to have been because he knew what his brother did or he took part in it. But then again, what's weird to me is that then that would mean that John Jay's friends are lying because somebody called Kelly and somebody answered the door for Kelly. And I just don't believe that John Jay is completely unaware of all of this in his room playing video games. I just don't believe that.
0: Yeah, it's hard for me to believe that too. And is there a chance that maybe he was unaware? Sure but do I buy it? Eh, Not really.
1: Well, Robert actually went back on this confession later and said he only said it to show remorse for the crime that he was charged of because he thought that would convince the parole board that he was worthy of being released since he was finally taking responsibility. But now he says once again that he's innocent which is so conniving because that means that he's basically saying, oh, I lied just so I can get out of prison because I'm actually innocent.
0: Yeah, if you didn't do a crime, why would you admit to doing a crime? And then I know that there's false confessions, but in this case, I don't buy that. You confessed and I believe that you probably thought that by confessing that they were going to let you out of prison, but it backfired
1: cuz for years they were saying he's not taking responsibility he's not showing emotion or remorse for what he did so now he's like if i pretend like i did it and i show remorse and i act like i did it by accident and i was i was just on drugs and i was really mad because of the drugs then they'll let me out i think that he definitely did it and he tried to play it down as this thing oh and i was so mad i just kept punching her and you know doesn't even talk about the mutilation literally doesn't even go into those details. So he just really played down his account of what actually happened that day just so he could get out of prison early.
0: Right. And you're also a 21 year old adult. You're not like some child who committed this horrible crime. You knew full full well what you were doing that entire time.
1: Exactly. Drugs or not, you don't do that.
0: Robert Golub is eligible for parole every two years and the Tenius family plans to testify each time in hopes of keeping him in prison and off the streets. Robert Golub is currently 52 years old and remains incarcerated at the Fishkill Correctional Facility in Beacon, New York. He's currently the only person serving time for this crime since John Jay, to this day, hasn't come forward with any other information.
1: Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to this episode of Going West. Yes, thank you guys so much for listening
0: to this episode. And next week, we'll have an all new episode for you guys to dive into.
1: And this case was so sad to look into. What was done to this poor girl is so horrible. But if you do want to learn some more details about the case, there's actually a book about it. And it's called Against Her Will by Ronald Watkins, if anyone is interested in learning more about the case.
0: And this is the time in the show where we give our lovely listeners shout outs who left us five star reviews on Apple Podcasts this week.
1: Thank you so much to Chuck in Georgetown, Indiana. Thank you, Suzette in Stockton, California, and Justin in Amarillo, Texas. Big thanks going out to
0: Pat in New Hampshire, Gina in Lake Forest, California, and Destiny in
1: Kansas City, Missouri. Thank you so much to Jenny in Louisville, Kentucky. Thank you to Linda in Rochester, New Hampshire, and Erica in Canby, Oregon. Big thanks going out to Tricia,
0: not sure where you're from, and Lindsay, we also don't know where you're from, But thank you so much.
1: And thank you so much to Taylor. We gave you a shout out last week, but thank you for leaving an actual review. Means a lot. Thank you so much to Abraham in San Jose, California. Thank you to Teresa in Sunset, Louisiana. And thank you so much to my friend Veronica in North Hollywood.
0: And of course, we have to give big thanks to our latest patrons. These are people who joined our Patreon account this week. And if you want to join, head over to patreon.com slash Podcast. You guys get some bonus episodes.
1: Thank you so much to Aisha. I think it's Aisha. It might be Aisha. I'm not sure. Thank you so much. Thank you to Lindsay. Thank you, Lori. Thank you so much to Patricia and Samantha.
0: Big thanks going out to Barrett, Alex, Megan,
1: Heather, and Deborah. And thank you so much to Madison, Jolene, Michelle, Erica, and Tricia. And last but not least, we have a big thanks going to
0: Raul, Lisa, Nicole, and jennifer you guys are so amazing we love you so much we can't wait to share some more bonus episodes with you guys we've got some really crazy ones coming for september and also october so stay tuned for that
1: if you're not yet a patron but you really want to be because you need more going west episodes head on over to patreon.com going west podcast The link is in the description below, or in this episode. This isn't YouTube. It's in the description of this episode, and it's where you can get a shit ton of bonus episodes and support the show.
0: Also, we're going to be coming out with some new designs for Going West for the fall, and also some designs for our new show, The Dark Parts. So stay tuned for that. It's going to be so much spooky fun.
1: All right, guys. So for everybody out there in the world, cheerio and don't be a stranger.